the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Happy to have you with us. Uh, this hour, we're going to talk with Lee Eckloff. He is the author of Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church as Family Changes Everything. We'll also remember the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, events. All of that coming up on the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, President Trump, French uh, uh, President Emmanuel Macron and other world leaders gathered on the beaches of Normandy, France today to commemorate 75 years since D-Day, the invasion uh, that took place and pay tribute to the heroes of the battle that was the turning point of World War II. D-Day saw more than 150,000 Allied troops land on the beaches of Normandy in southwest France on the 6th of June in 1944. The Battle of Normandy, codenamed Operation Overlord, changed the course of the war and ultimately helped bring about Nazi Germany's defeat in May of 1945. On Wednesday, in a ceremony at Portsmouth, England, the president read an excerpt from a prayer that President Roosevelt said during a radio address on D-Day. We'll share that later in uh, the program. He also gave a speech today while touring the beaches of Normandy at an American military cemetery in France. Well, President Trump declared Wednesday evening that not early uh, that not early enough progress was being made in last minute negotiations with Mexico as the U.S. prepares to impose escalating tariffs unless that nation does more to stop the rush of illegal immigrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. Progress is being made, but not nearly enough, the president tweeted. Well, the president repeated his comments while making his way to Normandy early uh, Thursday saying that Congress and the Democrats have been a disaster on immigration and that Dems, uh, Democrats were uh, con- content with immigration crime. The president also stressed that he was serious about imposing tariffs on Mexico and said that many lawmakers do not know what they're talking about when it comes to tariffs. The president's remarks came as U.S. Customs and Border Protection reported Wednesday that the number of migrants apprehended at the border skyrocketed nearly 133,000 in May, levels not seen in over a decade. That number surpassed 144,000 when counting migrants deemed inadmissible more than a... um 30% increase from the prior month and double the influx recorded at the beginning of the year. Talks between U.S. officials and Mexico resumed today. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told senior Democrats on Tuesday that she ultimately wants to see President Trump in prison, according to a report. The Speaker reportedly made the remark while defending her stance against impeaching the the president in an evening meeting with House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler and other top Democrats, according to Politico. I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him in prison, she said, according to multiple Democratic sources familiar with that meeting. Pelosi wants to hold the president accountable, the sources said, but thinks voters should get him out of office in 2020, after which he could possibly face criminal charges. Uh, 
Meanwhile, uh, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney wants to debate Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, on the Medicare for All plan. Delaney invited the ire of several fellow Democrats, including Ocasio-Cortez, last weekend when he urged that, or rather argued, that Medicare for All was bad policy. AOC was... um, has refused to debate Delaney so far, and fellow progressive representative uh, Ilhan Omar had one response for Delaney on Wednesday, no means no. In an interview with Fox News, Delaney lamented the Democratic Party's intolerance to different ideas and said Medicare for All made it difficult for Democrats to beat Trump in 2020. Carrie Underwood won big at the 2019 Country Music Award uh, program, taking home the show's top honor Wednesday evening with the video of the year for her um, hit Cry Pretty. Underwood, 36, beat out the other video of the year nominees, including uh, Kelsey, a ballerina, Miss, um, well, I don't need to tell you what the songs were. You can look them up if you're interested. Along with the video of the year, she also won the night's first televised accolade female video of the year for her song Love Wins at the uh, Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. Her wins, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday rather, extends her run as the most decorated act in the history of the Country Music Awards. The American man killed at the border in a shootout with U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers on Monday night was attempting to smuggle in two Chinese nationals, according to officials. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi told senior Democrats she'd like to see the president uh, in prison, but thought he did a good job while in um, in Europe. YouTube announced Wednesday it would ban videos promoting or glorifying racism and discrimination as as well as those denying well-documented violent events like the Holocaust or Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. (coughs) Excuse me. The Trump administration has ended the government's contact with a uh, bioscience company that provided human fetal tissue from elective abortions for testing purposes. HHS was not satisfied with the results of the review testing, uh, the review it conducted to make sure that the procurements were in keeping with government relations and with ethical and moral concerns. Judicial Watch has revealed this week that new emails show that the FBI moved swiftly to meet the demands of Clinton's uh, lawyers to provide him with its investigative documents on Clinton just two months prior to the 2016 elections. And the Democrats have continued their mission to root God out of the public square in the name of secularism by removing So Help Me God from the U.S. House of Representatives oath witnesses must take when testifying before several of the congressional committees, all of which are currently under Democratic control. And earlier this week, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court delivered a message that the United States Supreme Court desperately needs to hear. The lawful exercise of your Second Amendment rights does not make you a second-class citizen. The state Supreme Court could find no justification for the notion that a police officer may infer criminal activity merely from an individual possessing a concealed firearm in public. On this day in 1925, the Chrysler Corporation is founded by Walter Percy Chrysler. And on this day in 1939, the first Little League game is played in Lundy Lumber, um, and they defeated the Lycoming Dairy 23-8 in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And, of course, Little League has been a fixture in this country ever since. 
And on this day in 1944, during World War II, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France on D-Day as they began the liberation of German-occupied Western Europe. On this day in 1966, black activist James Meredith is shot and wounded while walking along a Mississippi highway to encourage black voter registration. And on this day in 1956, a little brown baby girl was born to Clarence and Lillian Rose at Emanuel Hospital in Portland, Oregon. The rest is, well, history. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but we will continue in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <laughs> Thank you, Clark. I appreciate that. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we are remembering the events that took place in uh, some 75 years ago, June 6, 1944. It was in the early hours of that day, the largest amphibious assault in history Preceded by an enormous air assault commenced, codenamed Operation Neptune, but more commonly referred to as D-Day. It was the first assault of Operation Overlord, the Allied forces invasion of the European continent, and the beginning of the end of Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Workers Party, or Nazi Party, and its reign of terror across Europe. Shortly after midnight, 2,200 Allied bombers and attack aircraft began their assault on German strongholds along the beaches of Normandy, France. The bombardment was followed by more than 24,000 U.S., British, and Canadian airborne troops who parachuted behind the the beachheads. While aerial and naval bombardments continued to soften German positions at landing zones, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. Through heavy swells in the English Channel, an Allied armada was launched, and by sunrise, more than 132,000 Allied infantry began landing along 50 miles of Normandy beaches. They came in 289 escort vessels with 277 mine sweeps, and they waded ashore for more than um, 5,000 landing and assault craft. The Nazi defenses were formidable, 50,000 troops manning 170 coastal 100-millimeter and 210-millimeter artillery guns and 320-millimeter rocket launchers rained murderous fire down upon the Allied forces as they struggled ashore with endless machine gun and sniper fire. It's difficult to imagine what that must have been like, and yet one wave followed another and another. By the end of the first day, there were more than 10,000 Allied casualties with 4,400 confirmed dead and as many missing in action, more single-day American battle dead, Uh, than uh, Antietam and Pearl Harbor. There were an estimated thousand German casualties as well. And as the landing zones were secured in the days that followed, uh, the initial infantry and airborne units pushed inward. By the end of June, more than 875,000 Allied troops had crossed the English Channel, and by mid-August, more than 2 million Allied troops had landed, incurring almost 226,000 casualties. After the initial assault was underway, President Franklin Roosevelt's his message and prayer for our military personnel spoke to the enormity of the task and the arduous battles that f- would follow. FDR noted that many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer as we rise to every new day. And again, When each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts, he prayed. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. It is a day that is difficult to imagine from our vantage point in the 21st century, but of course, 
this country, our lives would have been much different if they had not succeeded. Operation Overlord, or D-Day, as it has come to be known, was the highest risk venture of World War II. Um, Three Days at the Brink is a book written by Brett Baer, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Um, It really outlines the the drama, and if you're looking for something to give you a a sense of what happened, uh, not only on uh, D-Day, but throughout uh, this uh, this war. But at a critical conference in Tehran in November of 1943, the big three, as they were called, Frank, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, fiercely debated the wisdom and the timing of this kind of launch. They all knew it was a high-risk gamble and that failure could lead to a catastrophic bloodbath that would turn the war in German leader um, Adolf Hitler's favor. And yet they decided it had to be done and they would do it. Supreme Commander General Dwight Eisenhower was aware that, despite the peril, Overlord was a necessity. Every obstacle must be overcome, every inconvenience suffered, and every risk run to ensure that our uh, blow is decisive, he wrote to his commanders. We cannot afford to fail. And yet failure was a real possibility. He had devised an elaborate plan. He choreographed to the last detail, but he knew that some circumstances were out of his control. On the 4th of June, 1944, hearing discouraging weather reports and already having delayed the invasion a day because of storms, he faced an agonizing moment of decision to go on June the 6th or wait for better weather. When President Trump delivered his um, D-Day remarks uh, today at the U.S. Cemetery in Normandy, he had a rare opportunity to pay tribute with emotion, personal stories, and soaring words to the service and sacrifice of those who died on those beaches and saved the world. And he rose to the occasion and did an an excellent job doing just that. One of the things that uh, many are encouraging us all to do is to go back and read the prayer that the president offered, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, offered, Um, it's now referred to as the powerful D-Day prayer. He didn't call for a special day, but as mentioned, for a season of prayer throughout this endeavor. He was a great communicator, and he knew how to use the power of radio to bypass the media and go straight to the American people. In World War II, the very survival of Western civilization was, of course, at stake. In freedom's darkest hour, America's commander-in-chief turned to the Almighty and understood the power of prayer. FDR had a letter printed in the soldier's pocket Bible given to soldiers leaving for war in which he took pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve. On the evening of D-Day, June 6, 1944, President Roosevelt went on the radio to address the nation, but he did so by asking the American people to join him in prayer. I am concerned that many of our younger generation don't understand what it really means to be an American and don't have an appreciation of what our men and women in uniform have done over the years to give us the freedom we enjoy today, imperfect as it may be. Unfortunately, we don't emphasize American history and civics in our schools like we used to. A recent study found that 22 percent of millennials weren't sure if they knew what the Holocaust was. Sixty seven percent had had. Um, not heard of Auschwitz and Nazi death camps where um, more than a million Jews and others were murdered. As we observe uh, today, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, it was great to see the president read excerpts of FDR's D-Day prayer in Portsmouth, England on Wednesday. The great Anglican evangelist, uh, Dr. John Guest, says that there is a battle going on for the soul of America. Guest, who spent many a night in a London air raid at the time of uh, the war, a shelter as a boy, wonders what those who gave their lives on the beaches of Normandy would say if they saw what was going on today. Well, again, as we observe the 75th anniversary of D-Day, it was uh, great to see the president 
uh, deliver his speech. But President Roosevelt's, I should say, the prayer from the previous president, uh, President Roosevelt's D-Day prayer reminds us of what the greatest generation did to save the free world. And it reminds us, too, of the strength and humility of a U.S. president who understood the power of prayer and who asked the American people uh, to engage in it, saying, my fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. So he had spoken the day before to the American people about the fall of Rome. How might that have been received in the 21st century? Wondering, first of all, if people would know what he was referring to. And he went on to say, and so in our poignant hour, I ask you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, and I've uh, quoted this part already, but uh, skipping down a bit, lead them straight and true. Give them strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessing. Their road will be long and hard for the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by the, thy grace and by the righteousness of thy cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tired by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violence of war. For these men are, are uh, lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and good will among thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for the, the return to heaven uh, and the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. It gives us, and the prayer goes on, it gives us some perspective of the, uh, uh, the battles that they were to face in this great undertaking of D-Day. Also 30 years ago, a series of student-led demonstrations in Beijing were put to uh, an end violently by Chinese military. After months of peaceful protests in 1989, the Chinese Communist Party unleashed the might of its military on the unarmed civilians. Uh, this includes uh, included the use of machine guns and tanks. Uh, some of us recall those events. Unofficial death tolls are often estimated to be in the thousands. However, the actual number is unknown and will be unknown. At the uh, regional forum in Singapore, Chinese Defense Minister Wai Fengyi uh, he recently defended the Tiananmen Square crackdown in which the government and the military killed hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters, imprisoned or otherwise suppressed countless others. The past 30 years have proven that China has undergone major changes, he says. The repression was worth it, he says, because since those days in 1989, China has enjoyed stability and development, end quote. The Chinese government today suppresses knowledge of what happened at Tiananmen Square and hides information about the protests from its people. Yet while the Chinese government has worked relentlessly to downplay and quash all memory of what took place on the 4th of June, 1989, in Tiananmen Square, survivors and allies of the protest movement continue to carry on its legacy and shed light on the reality of the communist regime. They mark this anniversary, June the 4th. Some of them held a commemorative event on Tuesday in front of the U.S. Capitol to mark the 30th anniversary. The common theme of those who spoke about Tiananmen Square protest was the need to remember the sacrifice of those who bravely protested, many of whom paid with their lives and the, to continue their fight in the long struggle to bring freedom to the people of China. Additionally, as many speakers mentioned, the economic growth taking place in modern China simply has masked the underlying lack of freedom and continual violations of individual rights that occur under the authoritarian government. 
Among the speakers were those who personally suffered under China's ruling Communist Party, including survivors of that Tiananmen Square protest. Their goal was to ensure that the Communist Party is held accountable for its crimes against the people of China, says the president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in a speech at that event, remembering to that anniversary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with um, Lee Eckloff. He's the author of Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. He speaks from the vantage point of a pastor. We'll hear what he has to say in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes, you love your church, but you wonder if it could be more. There's a greeting team, but is there a true spirit of welcoming? There are committees, leaders, and programs, but is there a spirit-led vision? There are small groups, but are people truly connected? Well, Pastor Lee Eckloff was troubled by these questions. Then he had a realization. He wasn't called to lead an organization, but a family. His job was to be a homemaker, not a CEO. This paradigm shift changed everything. It feels like home is his book, and he shares what he's learned about being the family of God and how to live into that beauty. Well, Lee Eckloff is my guest this afternoon. He has served in pastoral ministry for over 40 years. He's currently senior pastor of Village Church in Lincolnshire in Chicago area, where he served since 1998. He is the author of Pastoral Graces, Reflections on the Care of Souls, and teaches pastoral counseling at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's a regular contributor to Christianity Today's Pastors and Preaching uh, Today.com, and he is a native of South Dakota and the product of a rural church. He joins us today to talk about his book, uh, Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, hi. Thank you, and happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the church. Um, You mentioned that uh, so many of us consider the church, or at least we function in the church, as an organization rather than as a family, or for that matter, a a body, uh, a living uh, body. What what difference does that make if we, um, how we view the church in light of how we relate to one another? It's a difference that is particularly clear to leaders of a church because we sit down in board meetings and so forth and mm-hmm. plan and so forth. So we, it is an organization. Of course, a church is an organization, but when we think of our church as a family, particularly just as if uh, parents sit, sit down to talk about their families, our priorities change, our aspect changes, the way we approach this stuff. So we think about uh, care, for example, uh, becomes a higher priority than if you're just trying to grow your church or make everything run smoothly. Names matter. Um, how we welcome people into our home, church home, matters. It's different. Even how we worship changes somewhat uh, when we are thinking of one another as uh, primarily as brothers and sisters and as a family as opposed to a organization or an endeavor. Mm-hmm. Now, for some listeners, the word family brings thoughts of warmth and connection and uh, belonging. For others, the thought of family uh, represents uh, other things because of the background that they came from, perhaps not never having belonged to a stable and loving family. I- explain how we can all better understand this, this notion of family in, in, as church in a way that reflects God's intent for us as family. Yeah, that's a, 
that's a hard problem, and it's the same problem that they uh, some people engage when they talk about God as Father. It's it's not always a good word to people, and just the same as family isn't, or even if it's not a bad word, it's a very incomplete uh, idea. Really, the people are born for a family. I mean, I was just reading in Ephesians three where God is is called the Father, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Um, people are hungry for what a church family offers. They may not really understand it because they didn't grow up in a family, and that's what's so wonderful about it. Uh, they, if we, if someone comes into a church family and finds real brothers and sisters, if they find connection with God the Father, who is perhaps not like the Father they know. Mm-hmm. If they realize the relationship responsibilities and the privileges, the grace of it all, uh, that's that's one of God's great gifts. One of the tragedies in in the world today is Christians who think they don't need the church, that that that's optional, that they can kind of take it or leave it or come and go as they wish. There's just nothing in the Bible that gives sanction to that, and uh, rather we are meant to be together in the family of God. Amen. Now, what is the design for God's household in Scripture? You've touched on that, but I want to ask you the question directly. So we have some idea of what we're striving to become as family. Well, to begin with, I think it is this set of relationships that starts in the in the divine trinity, in the holy trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, that, that intimacy of relationships. When we come to know Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit um, comes into our lives, then that spirit who is constantly loving and calling to God the Father, that spirit is in us. And um, that brings us into this intimacy with God and then with one another. The idea that we are brothers and sisters, I, I was shocked to find out a few years ago that in the New Testament age, Greek and Roman culture, Jewish culture, nobody ever spoke of other people as brothers and sisters, like we might on a team mm-hmm. or a military unit. That was unheard of. Uh, and the highest loyalty that you could have was to your blood relative. It was more, you had a higher loyalty to your brother than you did to your wife, for example. Well, then imagine the shock to the system when Jesus is told his mother and brothers are outside, and he says, these, my disciples, are my bro- mother and brother and sisters. That, that was shocking to the system because Jesus was redefining who our first family is. And uh, that's what we exemplify. And at the heart of all that is his principal command to us to love one another. He says it over and over, three times in two verses in John 13. Love one another, love one another, because that's how God's family functions. Let's talk about your experience as a pastor before having the epiphany that you weren't a CEO, but you were called to to oversee a family. What was church like life like as a leader then, and what is it like now? Well, in some ways, church life for me didn't change. I mean, I've always enjoyed the love of the family of God. I've always felt like I was sort of in a parental role. 
there were many things that didn't change, but what was changing most was inside me. And there is a lot of pressure on pastors to, number one, grow your church. Uh, every pastor will know what I mean. The measure of our ministry often is, is your church growing? Well, sometimes that's a good question to ask, but not often. <laughs> it's sort of the gold rush of pastoring. You know, uh, it's like going to the Yukon, and uh, we all head up there, and some of us hope to strike it rich, that <laughs> is, to hit a church that grows. But a lot of us are just worn out by the prospect. And not only growth, but the whole model of church in, a, in corporate terms. You know, what's your objectives? What's your mission? Now, those words aren't bad, and thinking that way isn't awful. But at least for me, they became so burdensome that it literally pushed me into depression because I couldn't figure out how to do church that way. It didn't seem natural. It was, it was counterintuitive to me. And uh, when I gradually came to understand that that really isn't the model, that the Bible doesn't talk about how big your church is, never. And that some of these principles that are brought in from business, you know, that's fine, use them if they help, but be careful because the guidelines for church life are not drawn from business or organizations. The guidelines for church life are all drawn from the family. We're talking about the book Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Lee Eckloff in just a few moments. And we'll get down to some of the practical um, elements that he uh, provides in the uh, in the book to help us better understand how do we do this? How do we dis- rediscover the church as a family and how that changes everything? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. My guest is Lee Eckloff. Now, one of the things that you um, make the point of saying in the book is that it doesn't require major uh, changes necessarily, but there are small changes that can make a huge difference in the effectiveness, the warmth, and the growth of a church. What are some of the the, the ch- changes, the shifts that can be made uh, to make a church less of an organization and using that model and more of a family where there is warmth and growth and a feeling of uh, connectedness? Well, one, uh, Georgine, is the the value names. Now, I grew up in a small rural church where learning people's names was no problem. <laughs> you know, we knew everybody, and there weren't that many folks coming. So, uh, But in the church I serve now, which isn't particularly large, roughly 200, uh, the, the face has changed all the time. It's a, it's a transition area, and so people are always coming and going. It's really important to know names. It's the most loving, first loving thing you can do. Not the most loving, but the first loving thing you can do for people. So that's one thing, is to make sure we know names. Another is to um, create, to work it in the, in the sort of the foyer time, the, the non-worship service time, to invest in that time as a family time together. That's when everybody's there, coming and going. And um, we particularly want to work at how we welcome newcomers in the door. Uh, not just to be friendly. I mean, that's a given that we ought to be friendly, mm-hmm. but that we actually make friends, that we 
engage them, that we talk to them, that we remember their names, that we make connections with them, give them time. So those are the beginning places. Other things are simply to invest more in care. Uh, churches that are really fixated on growing sometimes lose track of taking care of people because care doesn't sort of pay off, you know, if, uh, if you know what I mean. I mean, you, it's expensive in time. You know, going to the hospital takes time, bringing meals takes time. Uh, and nobody new comes to the church because you do those things. But that's what a family does. There's There's a lot of things like that that are just sort of simple, basic things. A lot of churches are already doing these things, and that's why their churches feel like home. Now, what role does the pastor play in creating that environment, and how does that inspire, encourage, or at least model for congregants how you relate to one another as family? That's really important. The pastor has to be, in one sense, just has to be really present to people. Uh, it's hard for some pastors who are by nature introverts. You know, that's not an easy thing to go out and walk into a foyer full of people. And I appreciate that. That's not really my personality, but I get that. But we need to be out there. We need to know people's names uh, before everybody else. I st- we work here in our church at studying names, learning them. Um, we, as pastors, need to recognize that in Scripture, the uh, indications to church leaders from Paul are that we are to regard our church as a family. We are to manage our own households well so that we'll know how to manage the church of God. We look at these people parentally. Um, we're caring for them as as a parent would. Paul says, I was like a nursing mother to you. I was like a father to you. So that's, that's what we bring to this, uh, this care for them. They're not part of the machine. They're not soldiers, you know, for us. They're, they're our family and they're our brothers and sisters. So that's really crucial so that they feel healthy and loved and welcomed and known. I'm very aware of helping them meet each other, connect with each other. Things like that, I think, are really important. Mm-hmm. Are there boundaries in the, the love that's shared within the church family? And how do you secure mm. those boundaries? That's a really good question. Uh, it's you know it's changed in my lifetime. Um, I mean, there's certainly boundaries that we are more aware of in terms of touch, of um, oh, just the way we talk to one another. That we don't want to say anything that would might be uh, you might say unwittingly suggestive or or uh, unkind any that way. Um, so yeah, there are boundaries. Those are hard. You know, I'm I'm an old guy. <laughs> I'm 68, and it's hard for me to remember that giving somebody a hug might not be appreciated by everyone, and it just isn't the way I have been. You know, I've been growing up in the church. Uh, so there are things like that. Mm-hmm. There are boundaries too that are sort of, you might say, implicit, in that I can't know everybody. I, I have boundaries. I have to protect my own private life, my own inner life. So there are those kinds of boundaries. Um, And there's a place where not everybody's ready for deep sharing and all that. They, 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 when they walk in as a guest or whatever, you know, they don't want to be mobbed. We were just talking today about a young couple that visited recently and we think we, we were too welcoming and I think we put them off. A little overwhelming. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, talk about um, the 515 rule that you implemented in your church for welcoming new attendees. <laughs> Last summer, my wife and I were on a trip and we stayed in a hotel, the Marriott Hotel. And we, uh, I got off on the long floor. I was meant to go to the first floor. I went to the basement, which is where the laundry is, you know, and where the workers all sort of congregate and stuff. And when the, uh, when the, when the elevator door opened, there was this huge sign that said the 15, five rule. And I'll read it to you because this is what I sent to my church. When a guest comes within 15 feet, stop, make eye contact and smile within five feet. We engage and verbally greet the guest. Well, I saw that. I go, oh, man, is that good? This maid was trying to get on the elevator, and I held it open, and she's looking at me. She wasn't exactly practicing the 15-5 rule, and uh, I said, that's really good. I'm going to send it to my church. And as soon as I did, our people grasped that. And now on the, we have a couple little monitors in our foyer. We kind of post some announcements and things. We just typically put 15.5 on the monitor as a kind of code to our people, and they do it. It's not hard to understand. The hardest thing, Georgine, with visitors is you just don't see them. It's like they come in with camouflage on. You just can't see them because you're, you're looking for people you know, and we always look past the people we don't know. That's true in a grocery store or a ball game or anywhere. But in church, we really have to have eyes for one another and for the others who come in and smile at them and engage with them and talk with them. Yeah. The 15 5 is a. It was a little stroke of genius. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Marriott be, Corporation came up with <laughs> to be intentional and recognize it. It's going to take effort on my part to break away from maybe the familiar faces that I'm used to, in order to recognize those that I'm less used to. Now, you made mention of pastors who, um, for whom it's not necessarily comfortable to extend themselves to strangers, to be in a lobby full of of people. What do you say to the average parishioner who also finds that very challenging, um, and and whether or not it's worth stepping out of one's comfort zone in order to help create an environment where all are welcome, uh, even when we um, we shrink back from that kind of engagement. Yeah. It's funny. I, j- I chat with my brother about this because he's a confirmed introvert and proud of it. And, uh, uh, you know, he's not going to walk around in the foyer and shake hands with everybody. That's just not going to happen. And I, I, I understand that. I would say that for people who find sort of uh, their, what, put off, by the cluster, you know, the, the the milling people, I would say, well, then go stand in the corner by one person. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to one person? Uh, if you can't do it in the foyer, can you, um, can you be aware of who you're sitting next to as the service ends and just say hello? Uh, and even beyond that, if it's not about friendliness and meeting new people, can you engage with other brothers and sisters through notes that you'd send uh, a song you'd recommend, you know, here's a song you should hear. Um, here's a verse of scripture. Uh, I'm praying for you. So I recognize that not everybody's cut out for, you know, glad ending and smoothing in the, in the foyer, like it comes easily to me. Uh, and as a body, we can, we can do these things together, help each other. Yeah, and I appreciate you suggest that we can do it differently. We can be intentional and reach out to one another um, differently. Uh, this is such an important book because it reminds us of how we are 
to connect to one another and the value of that. What difference has it made for your congregation as you have begun to see one another? And I, I say begun, but as you see one another as family rather than just people with whom you associate once a week and then uh, uh, part. Well, one thing that comes to my mind is there is sort of a, a sweet contentment. Uh, people like to be here. They, they like to be with their brothers and sisters. Um, they're not afraid of hanging around. I, people hang around at our church for, I'm going to say, 45 minutes after a service um, and just enjoy each other's company. They pray with each other. We've been much more intentional about creating times to pray with each other. Our leaders are uh, taking steps to, like we're all, our elders are all writing in a few each month to every person in our church, just writing handwritten note mm. to say how much they matter to us. Um, small groups, of course, are important in many churches, and they're important in ours because that's where you really sit face yeah. to face and, you know, get a little deeper with people. So there are a lot of things like that that, um, bring about this family life. It's a place of safety uh, that, you know, my vulnerability as a pastor is important. Um, You know, I don't have to get up and tell about all my troubles, but it's important people know that we're open. We're open, right? Once again, the book is titled Field Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. The book is published by Moody. Lee Eckloff, thank you so much for joining us today. Why, thank you, and it was great to be with you. Appreciate it very much. News and traffic are up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. I actually said Liberty. It's Liberty. There's a song for a commercial, and they sing Liberty, 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 and it gets on my nerves. I perhaps got on your nerves just a moment ago by saying liberty, coin, and currency. It is liberty. There, I feel better. Well, U.S. and Mexican officials have been discussing an agreement that would ramp up Mexico's immigration enforcement effort and allow the United States to deport asylum seekers as both sides are working to clinch a deal that will avert the tariffs the president announced earlier on Mexican products, according to an administration official. In fact, they seem to be progressing in the right direction, and it's possible that they will forestall the uh, implementation of those tariffs as the talks continues. It's not clear if the president who uh, has been in Europe uh, or Mexican leaders who accept the terms of such an agreement, but delegations from both countries held staff level talks in Washington uh, today will continue again. This was one day after a meeting convened by the vice president. Uh, didn't result in a deal to avert the uh, tariffs on Mexican goods the president threatened to impose by Monday. Well, the contours of the proposed agreement were first reported by the Washington Post, and under the deal, Mexico and Guatemala would agree to take asylum seekers from Central America who would be swiftly deported from the United States rather than await their asylum cases in the country. Now, the cases would move forward. They would just not remain in the country. Mexico would take Guatemalan asylum seekers, and Guatemala would take Salvadorans and Hondurans, according to the report. Well, Acting Homeland Security Secretary of Kevin McLean, one of the principals in this week's discussions, was in Guatemala late last month and signed a migration cooperation agreement with the country's authorities. And uh, those in agencies overseeing the borders say they are utterly overwhelmed.
Meanwhile, a chilling confession from a captured ISIS fighter has shed light on how the terrorist group intended to exploit the vulnerabilities of the U.S. border with Mexico, using English speakers and Westerners to take advantage of smuggling routes and target financial institutions. Seized ISIS fighter Abu Henrique, a Canadian citizen with dual citizenship with Trinidad last month, said that he was sought out by the violent insurgency's leadership to attack the U.S. from a route starting in Central America, according to a study by the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism and published in Homeland Security Today. ISIS has organized plots in Europe with uh, uh, returnees, so it seems entirely plausible that they wanted to send guys out to attack. The issue that makes a North American attack harder is the travel is more difficult from Syria. That's a quote from Anne Speckard, who is co-conducting the study as the director of the adjunct um, of the ICSVE and the adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University. Uh, so the idea, she went on to say, that they would instead use people who were not known on their uh, uh, to their own government as having joined ISIS might make it possible for them uh, to board airplanes. Well, Henrique uh, allegedly traveled to Syria with the intention of serving as an ISIS fighter, but was later told he could not take on soldiers' duties due to a chronic illness. At the end of or rather 2016, he claimed to have been invited by the ISIS intelligence wing known as the IMNI to join other Trinidadians and to launch financial attacks on the United States. The attacks were described by Henrique as designed to cripple the U.S. economy, and he was said to have been informed that he would be issued false identification and passports and would be maneuvered from Puerto Rico to Mexico and then to the United States. The plan came from someone from the New Jersey state of America. That's a quote, the New Jersey state of America. I was going to take the boat from Puerto Rico into Mexico. He was going to smuggle me in. The ISIS cadre continued in describing his mission, so to speak. He further elaborated that he believed the scheme was aimed at New York's financial targets. They wanted to use these people to attack inside the United States because they were from these areas. Uh, He told scholars indicating that they were um, either from North America or were English speakers. He underscored that other Trinidadians, many of whom had been killed in the protected um, mayhem over the past several years, were also approached to to do the same. Uh, However, he um, then claimed he refused the mission and was subsequently thrown into an ISIS prison in Manbij, and brutally tortured. His wife, also a Canadian, was also imprisoned in a women's department and endured psychological torture. The plot is likely dead as those uh, who were pressured to join uh, are, according to um, uh, Henrique, now all dead and ISIS is in retreat, as we know. Well, whether or not this is corroborated is uh, unclear, but this individual is making these kinds of claims about how they were at least recruited, whether or not ISIS was successful. Meanwhile, U.S. US Customs and Border Protection apprehended more than 144,000 migrants at the U.S. border in May of this year. The number of migrants apprehended at America's southern border skyrocketed last month to levels not seen in over a decade, with U.S. uh, Customs and Border Protection reporting nearly 133,000 arrests in May. That number surpassed the 144,000 when counting migrants deemed inadmissible more than a 30% increase from the prior month and double the influx recorded at the beginning of the year. We're in full-blown emergency, the um, uh, Customs and Border Protection official said on Wednesday, full-blown emergency. The number of apprehensions was the highest monthly total in more than 13 years. 
In uh, April, authorities recorded 99,304, and that number is climbing. Well, the latest figures could embolden the president with tense negotiations with Mexico and certainly has contributed to the threat of tariffs made just days ago. Last week, in an effort to force them to do more to stop the invasion of migrants into the U.S., the president vowed to impose a new 5% tariff on all Mexican imports. The tariffs set to go in effect on the 10th, which is Monday. Uh, Absent an agreement would increase over time, reaching 25% by October of this year. So far in fiscal 2019, which began last October, border officials have apprehended 593,507, a number higher than the total apprehensions in each of the past five fiscal years. Uh, We're bursting at the seams, um, the uh, officials told reporters on Wednesday. It's unsustainable and cannot continue. Administration officials insisted that they're unable to house this many people. When we have 4,000 in custody, we consider it high. When we have 6,000, it's a crisis, an official said. Right now, we have 19,000 in custody. It's just off the charge. Well, officials told reporters on Wednesday that the crisis is forcing the agency to divert resources, which is contributing to longer waits on the border for both recreational and commercial travel. Typically, during the uh, late summer and uh, late spring and summer months, rather, there is a drop-off in migration due to the heat, but... Uh, Customs and Border Patrol officials said this week they have not seen any evidence of that so far. The Trump administration for months has warned of a humanitarian crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. The president earlier this year even declared a national emergency on the southern border in a bid to divert billions of dollars toward the construction of his long-promised border wall. But he opened a new phase in the debate with the tariff threat against Mexico. And as mentioned uh, earlier in the program, negotiations are continuing Monday would be the start of imposition of tariffs of 5% that would increase until the 1st of October up to 25%. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about a bill that passed in the House for giving dreamers a path to citizenship despite the president's threat to veto. We'll explain what's in it and why the president opposes it. Some things to know about it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a hotly anticipated decision, the Washington State Supreme Court has ruled against the florist who was fined for not providing services for a same-sex couple's wedding. The court had previously heard the case, State of Washington versus Arlene's Flowers, ruling that Baronella Stutzman and her store, Arlene's Flowers, violated the Washington law against discrimination for refusing to make floral arrangements for a same-sex couple uh, and their wedding in 2013. Stutzman claimed that she was only acting in accordance with her religious beliefs. The U.S. Supreme Court asked the state high court to take another look at whether it violated her religious rights by not being neutral to her religion which, uh, when making that decision. The court said no. We now hold that the answer to the Supreme Court's question is no. The, adjudi- the, the difficult word, adjudictory bodies uh, that considered this case did not act with religious animus when they ruled that the florist and her, co- her corporation violated Washington law against discrimination by declining to sell wedding flowers to a gay couple. The Washington Supreme Court ruling said, and they did not act with religious animus when they ruled that such discrimination is not privileged or excused by the United States Constitution or the Washington Constitution. Now, this is significant because the Supreme Court ruling in uh, the state of Oregon simply said um, that uh, the the state had, in fact, um, acted with animus. It didn't rule on the merits of the case in the uh, the cake shop uh, ruling that they came up with 
last year. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court held off uh, on reviewing the case so that the state court could take another look at uh, it in light of their 2018 uh, decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. That case drew national attention as it pitted the First Amendment against LGBT rights. Well, the high court declined to get involved in that battle. However, the ruling in favor of the baker by stating that the Colorado Commission was improperly hostile to his religious beliefs when they found him in violation of a state law. The U.S. Supreme Court asked the Washington Supreme Court to make sure that they did not make the same mistake uh, in their earlier ruling. Well, in the new decision, the Washington Supreme Court defended its initial decision, stating that the state's public accommodation law prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and that Stutzman's discriminated against Robert Ingersoll because he was marrying a man. Well, the new ruling says that the court painstakingly reviewed the record for any sign of intolerance on behalf of this court or the Benton County Superior Court, the two adjut. Um, adjudictory bodies are to considering the case and that we are confident that the two courts gave full and fair consideration to this dispute and avoided animus toward the religion toward religion. Now, Stutzman's case involves similar facts to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which involved Baker Jack Phillips. Phillips claimed that he had no problem selling to gay customers in general. The same is true for Stutzman. She serves uh, gay clients all the time. He just would not bake a cake for a gay wedding. Stutzman's case involved a gay couple, Ingersoll and Kurt Freed, uh, who had already been customers of hers, so she didn't refuse to serve them because they were gay, according to the court's documents. Ingersoll had gone to her for nine years, and Stutzman knew he was gay and in a relationship with Freed. No problem. What the when the problem uh, arose was when she was asked to participate by providing uh, her services to a ceremony she disagreed with. Well, another issue in the case is whether the creation of a floral arrangement is artistic expression protected by the First Amendment free speech clause. Now, if the Supreme Court ultimately hears this case, it will finally rule on that issue, which it failed to do in the Jack Phillips case. Stutzman claimed that she would have sold Ingersoll and Freed raw materials, the bulk flowers uh, for their wedding, but she would not create a custom arrangement. Similarly, Phillips had claimed that while he would not create a cake for a gay wedding, he would sell a pre-made cake. With the U.S. Supreme Court declining to settle the free speech and religious freedom issues in Phillips' case, they have the opportunity to do so again should they decide to review Stutzman's. Now, my guess is um, they may be somewhat reluctant to do so. They kick the can down the road. They may want, may want to keep it there for some time. We'll certainly follow the story to see if that, in fact, is the case. But again, Baronella Stutzman losing a second time in the Washington State Supreme Court. Well, despite a veto threat from the president, House Democrats on Tuesday passed a bill that would provide a pathway to citizenship for an estimated two million undocumented immigrants whose parents brought them to the United States as children. The vote, 237 to 187, it uh, elicited chance of... um, Yes, you can or yes, we can in the chamber. The measure is not likely to succeed in the GOP led Senate where other pieces of legislation on issues like gun control, health care, climate change advanced by Democrats have languished in recent years. Just seven Republicans voted to support the bill in the House, while 187 no votes came from Republicans. The measure dubbed the Dream and Promise Act would protect the so-called dreamers like those protected by the Obama era deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA program from deportation and provide them a pathway for citizenship should they meet certain criteria. 
The proposal would also offer legal status to an estimated 400,000 people given temporary protected status, mainly from Central America, Africa and the Middle East, which have been engulfed in wars, civil conflicts and natural disasters. The bill is supported by immigration, liberal and labor groups, uh, included the, including rather the AFL-CIO and U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Supporters have said it would promote economic growth. This is about who we are as Americans and what is in the best interests of our country, said Representative Lucille, uh, Lucille Royball Allard of California, the measure's chief sponsor. To qualify for legal residence, the Dreamers and other immigrants brought to the U.S. could qualify if they attain college degrees, serve in the military, or have worked at least three years. They can apply for citizenship after another five years. They would have to apply. The measure lacks border security provisions, a sticking point for most Republicans, uh, which explains why so many um, did not support the bill. The bill, to my mind, said uh, Representative Glenn Grotham, a Republican from Wisconsin, uh, would ruin America. Now, what he meant by that? The proposal would uh, incentivize and reward illegal immigration, he went on to say, without protecting our communities and defending our borders, according to a letter the White House sent to lawmakers. Republicans pushed to add a provision to prevent suspected gang members from applying for legal status. Democrats argued the bill already contained controls to do just that. I would ask my colleagues to spare me this uh, false outrage. That's a quote from Representative uh, Joe Naguse of Colorado. Well, the White House has tried dismantling the Obama-era DACA program, but has been rebuffed by federal courts. The debate over the bill coincided with a surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border which has strained the government's ability to detain and process new arrivals. The president has said he's going to impose a 5% tariff on Mexican goods beginning next week if that country's government doesn't do more to prevent the flow of migrants and drugs into the U.S. The president has said the tariffs will generate enough revenue to cover $4.5 billion to address the influx that he has, an, has unsuccessfully requested from Congress. Well, some things you need to know about that uh, legislation. It protects uh, those, uh, at least according to Republicans who oppose the bill for that reason, protects those who are in the country, not only illegally, but are known criminals. The legislation would do nothing to prosecute them. It doesn't explicitly, critics say, address that. Applicants with several misdemeanor convictions can obtain a greed card, even if the misdemeanors were violent and resulted in the death or bodily injury. Uh, that's a critique from uh, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise. The Secretary of Homeland Security is prohibited from using gang databases of state and federal agencies to keep gang members from obtaining green cards. So that's one of the con- concerns. It also fast tracks citizenship for uh, those in the country illegally. Uh, the act uh, prioritizes citizenship for illegal migrants over legal immigrants, another objection, whereas most il- most legal uh, immigrants are granted green cards on a discretionary basis. H.R. 6 mandates insurance of a green card uh, issuance of a green card to eligible uh, illegal immigrants who receive a waiver or meet its lax requirements. Another of the uh, uh, criticisms. Also, uh, critics say it's expensive. Representative Chip Roy, a Republican out of Texas, said the legislation comes with a hefty price tag, tweeting Tuesday that it costs thirty four point six billion dollars, according to the uh, to U.S. CBO, while providing zero dollars uh, for border security. It does not close the immigration loophole. And finally, another objection. It does uh, doesn't include money for a border wall which was mentioned a moment ago, not a dime for uh, the wall funding to be included in that legislation. Um, It has passed the House, is not likely to move in the Senate without the significant changes that address those four concerns. So we'll follow the story as it develops there if it ever sees the light of day 
again. Well, House Democrats plan to move forward next week with a vote to hold U.S. Attorney General William Barr and White House Counsel Don McGahn in contempt of Congress. We'll tell you more about that. There is an asterisk by that. It's possible that if they resolve some of their conflicts with the Department of Justice, that could be um, held back. But we'll uh, we'll have to watch for that. We'll get into it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's been a developing story throughout the afternoon. Apparently, an armed person is now in custody after a standoff at the Gateway Fred Meyer here in Portland. The incident began with a report of an armed robbery at a nearby coal store, according to police. Well, they took an armed person into custody after the standoff that lasted over three hours at the Gateway Fred Meyer uh, store this afternoon. The incident began uh, at uh, Coles and apparently moved over to uh, Fred Meyer. The suspect went into the store when officers arrived at the scene, apparently trying to get lost in the crowd. Both the Special Emergency Reaction Team or CERT team and Crisis Negotiation Team were called to the store located on uh, Northeast 102nd. Employees at the store told uh, uh, local media they were uh, told to evacuate. Police made sure Fred Meyer customers were able to safely get out of the store as well. The suspect has not been identified, but the good news is the suspect is now in custody. So, Good to hear the uh, resolution of that issue. Well, House Democrats plan to move forward next week with a vote to hold U.S. Attorney General William Barr and White House Counsel Don McCann in contempt of Congress, despite signaling two weeks ago they were moving away from that vote. Political reported that uh, the attorney general would uh, be held in contempt for refusing to break the law and provide Congress with fully redacted or rather unredacted version of special counsel Mueller's report into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia in 2016. The report found that the campaign did not collude. The report contains uh, grand jury material, which cannot be revealed by law. House Democrats are demanding Barr break that law and are threatening to hold him in contempt for refusing. Um, McCann, uh, uh, Democrats want to hold him in contempt for refusing to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee after receiving a subpoena. Well, the coming vote is supported by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, other uh, leaders in the party. House Leader Steny Hoyer said in a statement, this administration's systematic refusal to provide Congress with answers and cooperate with congressional subpoenas is the biggest cover up in American history. I mean, they have to find one. Uh, finally, uh, two weeks ago, the Daily Wire reported on a letter um, Barr sent to House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, in which the attorney general outlined what uh, his department was doing to accommodate the Democrats and said that they would get nothing if they held him in contempt. So we'll see what happens and who gets what. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi might not be ready to impeach the president, but the New York Times is ready and uh, have provided a roadmap in uh, just in case. The Times, a frequent target of the president's ire and vice versa, published a piece on Wednesday titled The Articles of Impeachment Against Donald Trump, a Draft. The piece, written by a member of the newspaper's opinion department, was put together by analyzing the articles of impeachment drawn up against former President Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. If Democrats do move to impeach Mr. Trump, the articles of impeachment drafted against past presidents will probably guide them. An introduction to the hypothetical impeachment article reads, What might uh, impeachment articles against Mr. Trump look like? To find out, we reviewed the articles of impeachment drawn up against Richard Nixon in 1974 and Bill Clinton in 1998. Then we edited them by removing and adding passages to match the president's conduct as described in the Mueller report and elsewhere. 
uh, it goes on from there. You can find that in the New York Times if you're interested in more uh, details. They did write that impeachment is often said to be a political process. But when you assess Mr. Trump's conduct by the bar for impeachment set by past Democratic and Republican lawmakers for past presidents of both parties, the results are striking, the Times said. Not exactly an unbiased source, but nonetheless laying out what might happen. The opening explanation concludes the pathway to a possible Trump impeachment is already mapped out in these historical documents. And then they provide Uh, what they believe is the rationale for moving forward should the Democrats decide to do so. Again, Nancy Pelosi said earlier today that she would rather see the president um, incarcerated rather than impeached uh, once he is voted out of office by the American people in 2020. So the uh, fighting continues. Meanwhile, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn is firing his attorneys as he awaits sentencing is his criminal case. According to a motion filed in Washington federal court today, Flynn is ending his relationship with the law firm that has represented him and already hired new legal representation. The motion was filed by Covington lawyers uh, who asked the court for permission to formally withdraw from the case. General Flynn has notified the undersigned that he is terminating Uh, His counsel and has already retained new counsel for this matter. Flynn pled guilty to providing false statements to the FBI during a January interview in 2017. He admitted to lying about his communications with Russian Ambassador Ambassador Sergei Kislyak in December of that year. Flynn has been cooperating for months with special counsel Robert Mueller and federal prosecutors, and this move could signal he may be contesting his upcoming sentencing and perhaps may wish to change his plea. Flynn has consistently asked the federal judge in the case, Emmett Sullivan, to delay his sentencing while he continued his government cooperation. Flynn attended a sentencing hearing back in December of 2018. Uh, that hearing featured dramatic exchanges between Flynn's team and the judge. His lawyer, referring to Flynn, and had previously uh, called into question the circumstances of the FBI interview in a memorandum seeking a non-jail sentence. Sullivan asked Flynn if uh, if he wanted to withdraw his guilty plea, giving him multiple chances to do so or to challenge the circumstances of his FBI interview. Flynn declined, but Sullivan delayed sentencing. The judge has yet to set a sentencing date. Well, in May, Sullivan ordered federal prosecutors to release a transcript of recorded conversations between Kislyak and Flynn. The prosecutors refused. Slating the transcript was not relevant to ascertaining that Flynn was guilty or in making a sentencing recommendation. Sullivan appeared to be satisfied with this, stating in a notice on the court's docket system, upon consideration of the government's submissions in response to those orders, the government is not required to file any additional materials or information on the public docket. Well, the Trump administration moved earlier this week to impose new restrictions on travel from the United States to Cuba, halting cruise ships from going to the island's, uh, island nation and keeping with the memorandum from the president two years ago. The new rules coming from the Department of Treasury and Commerce will end some travel allowed under the reopening of relations with Cuba during the Obama administration. The U.S. broke diplomatic relations in 1961, two years after the communist dictator Fidel Castro seized power. Some non-family education-related travel will be allowed under the rule changes, according to the administration. However, the rules will prohibit recreational vessels, meaning cruise ships, from traveling from the United States to Cuba. Again, this was drafted and made available two years ago. It is now being implemented. The rules will take effect Wednesday. That would be, well, yesterday. Treasury Secretary Steve uh, 
Steven Mnuchin, in a formal statement, said Cuba continues to play a destabilizing role in the Western Hemisphere, providing a communist foothold in the region and propping up U.S. adversaries in places like Venezuela and Nicaragua by fomenting instability, undermining the rule of law and suppressing democratic processes. This administration has made a strategic decision to reverse the loosening of sanctions and other restrictions on the Cuban regime. These actions will help to Uh, Keep the U.S. dollars out of the hands of the Cuban military, intelligence and security services. When making the changes, the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control amended its Cuban asset control regulations, while the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security released complementary changes to its export administration regulations as well. And then there's this. Five rival gang members risked their lives to get baptized together at Cofield Prison in Texas just six months after Gateway Church in Dallas opened a campus within the maximum security unit. By the way, um, we have an effort here in Oregon that's uh, being undertaken. We've talked about it with Judge uh, retired Judge Tom Cole uh, right at the Oregon State Prison. So this should serve with some encouragement. Five rival gang members risked their lives to get baptized together um, in that uh, in that prison yesterday at our Cofield campus. This is a quote from Niles Halsinger, Gateway Cofield prison campus pastor in a Facebook video. Yesterday at our Cofield campus, we were able to do something that no church has ever been able to do in the history of this prison. And that is uh, water baptized men from what's called administrative segregation, a section of the prison that has the most violent felons, violent inmates of the whole prison. In Cofield Unit, which houses 4,200 uh, criminal offenders, there are men so dangerous and violent they spend 23 hours a day confined to their cells, Holsinger said. These guys cannot be around other people. They cannot be around friends. They cannot be around family. But on Sunday, the prison asked Gateway Church pastors and volunteers if they would water baptize several men who had made a decision to follow Christ. Five men were escorted into the gymnasium, each one shackled hand and foot and around the waist, and escorted by a guard that would not remove their hands from their arms until uh, they were placed, picked up, and put shackled in the water uh, water baptism tank. Uh, These men are all active gang members, and not only were they making a decision to be baptized and to commit their lives to Christ, they knew that this decision meant, to some of them, certain death. They walked out past men who, when they were Walking back, soaked them, uh, soaking them, dripping with water because of the decision. We're going to mark them for death. Five of the men baptized came from rival gangs, Halsinger says. When they came in the gym, the guards had to separate them on both sides so they wouldn't get close to uh, each other just in case uh, violence would break out. Yet those five men from two different gangs professed the same Lord and were baptized in the same waters And they walked out together in a line, guards not holding on to their arms anymore because God had done something in their hearts. Uh, That's what we get uh, to be part of every day here at Gateway. Well, Gateway Church, pastored by Robert Morris, uh, first opened its Cofield uh, campus rather in February. More than 650 inmates attended the megachurch's first service and over 500 men made decisions for Christ. Over the next two years, the church reportedly uh, plans to open 10 prison campuses within 100 miles of the existing Gateway campus. Additionally, there are small groups at every Gateway campus for families of the incarcerated. Now, I mention that firstly because it's so encouraging to hear what's happening there, but also to remind you that there is a move right here in uh, in Oregon to do similar work. They're opening a seminary at the Oregon State Prison. 
Uh, we've talked to Judge Cole about uh, the work that's being done, and they are moving forward um, at pace. And uh, I hope we're praying for that work as it uh, it's moving forward and has the potential to make significant impact here in the state of Oregon in the prison system. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. In 1777, Samuel Adams penned these words. Contemplate the mangled bodies of your countrymen and then say, what should be the reward of such sacrifice? If he loved wealth better than liberty the tranquility of servitude than the animating contest of freedom. Go from us in peace. We ask not your counsels or arms. Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains sit lightly upon you, and may posterity forget that you were our countrymen. Well, of course, he could not have anticipated the conflict that resulted in the Second World War. After the first, it was thought that perhaps we will never have to encounter this kind of War again, but of course that was not to be the case. Well, today, of course, marks the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, many have suggested this is the most significant day, certainly in armed conflict in world history. It was 75 years ago, in the early hours of June 6, 1944, the largest amphibious assault in history, preceded by an enormous air assault, commenced. Codenamed Operation Neptune, but more commonly referred to as D-Day, it was the first assault of Operation Overlord, the Allied forces' invasion of the European continent, and the beginning of the end for Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Workers, or Nazi Party, and its reign of terror across Europe. Shortly after midnight, 2,200 Allied bombers and attack aircraft began their assault on German strongholds along the beaches of Normandy, France. The bombardment was followed by more than 24,000 U.S., British, and Canadian airborne troops who parachuted behind the beachheads, while aerial and naval bombardments continued to soften German positions at landing zones Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. Through heavy swells in the English Channel, an Allied armada was launched, and by sunrise, more than 132,000 Allied infantry began landing along 50 miles of Normandy beaches. They came in 289 escort vessels with 277 minesweepers, and they waded ashore from more than 5,000 landing and assault craft. The Nazi defenses were formidable. 50,000 troops manning 170 coastal 100-millimeter mil, uh, and 2010-millimeter artillery guns and 320-millimeter rocket launchers rained murderous fire down upon the Allied forces as they struggled ashore with endless machine gun and sniper fire. By the end of that first day, there were more than 10,000 Allied casualties, with 4,400 confirmed dead and as many missing in action. More single-day American battle dead from Artesian and Pearl Harbor. There were an estimated 1,000 German casualties, and as the landing zones were secured in the days that followed, the initial infantry and airborne units pushed inward. By the end of June, more than 875,000 Allied troops had crossed the English Channel, and by mid-August, more than 2 million Allied troops had landed, incurring almost 266,000 casualties, 72,911 killed and missing, 153,475 wounded, along with many French resistance fighters, almost 15,000 civilians were also dead. After the initial assault was underway, President Franklin Roosevelt's message and prayer for our military personnel 
spoke to the enormity of the task and the arduous battles that would follow. He noted that many people have urged that I call the uh, the nation into a single day of special prayer, but because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuous, a continuation of prayer as we rise to each new day and again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking the, thy help to our efforts, he prayed. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. We should all learn more about this pivotal moment in our history as we acknowledge and commemorate the 75th anniversary Um, You can visit D-Day Memorial websites, outstanding National World War II Museum websites, Army D-Day websites, and many others to better understand the events that took place were carried out by this greatest generation that shaped not only their future, but ours as well. Today we remember D-Day, and we remember those who fought, lost their lives, and survived those events. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to have a mixture of the lighter side of the news as well as um, the Christian Outlook, which is our national program from Christian teaching talk stations across the country. I had the opportunity to host that program this week, and we'll share that with you in the second hour of tomorrow's program. On Monday, we'll talk with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of My Dearest Dietrich. It's a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last love. We know a lot about his life as a, a pastor, certainly as a a prisoner of war uh, held by Nazi Germany and ultimately executed for his faith. We're going to talk about another aspect of his life, Amanda Barrett being my guest. On Tuesday, we'll talk with Steve King, not Stephen King, but Steve King, author of Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. On Wednesday, we'll be hosting our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon, the Summer of Safety. We're going to change our focus just a bit. Of course, homelessness and the work of Union Gospel Mission is always top of mind. We're going to focus on a population that we're perhaps less familiar with in terms of the homeless population. We'll be focusing on women and children and providing for them a summer of safety. That's on Wednesday when the new Union Gospel Mission will join me in studio. On Thursday, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart is going to join me, the author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airmen's first-hand account of World War II. You may uh, be unfamiliar with the Tuskegee Airmen. These were African-American uh, airmen who fought long and hard to be given the opportunity to serve their country from the air, and just a remarkable uh, unit of uh, airmen that surpassed so many others. We'll talk uh, about um, uh, about that. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart will join us to talk about um, his book, Soaring to Glory. And then on Friday, we'll plan on lightening things up and certainly cover the day's news uh, should breaking news stories develop. So look forward to that. Earlier today, we had the opportunity to speak with Lee Eckloff. He is a pastor. He also is a a pastor who saw himself initially as a CEO and ultimately as um, more of a shepherd over his flock and as the author feels like home. How Rediscovering the Church as Family Changes Everything. The book is published by Moody. If you missed the uh, conversation, you can always go to our podcast, not only for today's conversation, but for every interview and conversation on the program. Go to kpdq.com for more information on that. We would welcome you to uh, to check that out and be a part of um, uh, past programs. So look forward to that. Well, I mentioned earlier in the program that today happens to be my birthday. I was born on the anniversary of D-Day, and despite the jokes that I've heard from Clark throughout the day, I was not born on D-Day proper. 
Uh, back in the 40s, it was some years later that I was born, but today happens to be my 63rd birthday, and I am so grateful um, to have had uh, 63 years up to this very moment. I mentioned, I think it was yesterday or perhaps the day before, that I attended my grandniece's kindergarten graduation, and it seems like it was just a very short time ago that I graduated from kindergarten and anticipated my first grade year and how important that seemed that I was going to be considered more of a grown-up kid at the time. I remember leaving Woodstock Elementary School and the anxiety of thinking about going to high school and how I was looking forward to starting my freshman year with my brother, who at the time would have been a, um, a when I entered my freshman year, would have been a junior. And I, I thought so much about what it would be like to have an upperclassman uh, brother and how he would make my transition so much easier. It was that summer, however, I was 13 years old. He had just turned um, uh, 16, in fact, um, on May the 5th. But it was on Memorial Day, later that month, on the 31st that year of May, that he drowned. And it changed the trajectory of my thinking and certainly of our entire family. That I remember so clearly my parents responding out of their Christian faith. And what a pivotal moment it was for my sister and I to um, to witness our parents' response to such a tragic event. I think often about the fact that my brother lived for 16 years, just barely 16 years, and here I am at 63. I am grateful. I'm not embarrassed to say how old I am. I'm just thankful. And just pray that this would be an important year of serving God, growing closer to Him, um, having a greater heart of compassion and understanding and grace, because I have been the recipient of such lavish grace and the love of God. So I'm looking forward to a great new year and uh, hope you'll join us here tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.